0: Welcome back to Perfect Barbecue. This is the podcast for barbecue enthusiasts, those of us who drive miles and miles or sometimes fly thousands of miles for that perfect bite of meat cooked over wood coals and the delicious smoke-infused flavor that that creates. You can find us at perfectbbq.com and uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. Uh, Also available on iTunes or any other favorite podcast aggregators we had a delightful time this week speaking with the guys from taste of texas and i think you're going to love this interview as much as we enjoyed doing it Well, several months ago, I found this very entertaining series of YouTube videos, a couple of guys in Germany who decided to build their own smoker. Now, not just a smoker, but a full catering rig. And I'm excited to hear this story. So from the taste of Texas barbecue in Cologne, Germany, welcome to the show, Jonas Freitag.
1: Hi, Dean. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: It's good to have you on. So I have to start off with what prompted your first interest in barbecue uh
1: that's that was a good friend of mine uh he's american and uh, he's been living here in germany for a while and um we just kind of went out for uh for dinner sometimes and uh would go to steakhouses and and burger places and stuff and and um and then this new restaurant opened up and it's uh outside even before they ever opened the sign said american barbecue and uh he was really excited that finally uh, this kind of smoked barbecue would make its way to Germany, and uh, yeah, sure enough, a couple of weeks later they opened. We went there, and the food was absolutely terrible, and uh, <laughs> he was very <laughs> disappointed. They had they did a, they had an electric smoker. Uh, I don't know if they'd ever been to barbecue country uh, or just seen it on YouTube somewhere, but they didn't really know a whole lot about it. They just thought it was a niche, and uh, yeah. Whatever, the food was terrible. And uh, yeah, he was so disappointed and he had told me all about how he grew up eating this kind of Texas-style barbecue where he smoked the beef uh, for a very long time and then it comes out really juicy and succulent. And yeah, it sounded really interesting. So I said, well, how about we make some ourselves And And, uh, and I went online and I, I found a, an offset smoker on eBay um, that some guy wanted to get rid of. And yeah, we just, we bought it and we thought you know let's give this a try and we live in we live in a very much metropolitan area here so uh we fired up the smoker on a on the second floor on a balcony and it's really urban so uh it didn't it didn't take very long for the fire department to show up and (laughs) and the neighbors to complain um and we started off easy cooking cooking pork ribs and that kind of stuff but and, uh, and I guess most of it was terrible in the beginning, but it was it was good enough to keep us going. We kind of thought this was really interesting. It was the dead of winter and you sit out there and stare into your fire. Everyone who does barbecue uh, knows what I'm talking about. There's a certain, I don't know what you want to call it, romance about being out there, man in fire. And uh, so yeah, so that got us interested and we just kept going and uh, had to move outside of the city um, to, uh, my friend's parents-in-law—they have a place outside of the city where we can smoke, and uh, yeah, things things went
0: from there. So, did you travel to Texas then to get uh, a flavor for brisket, or how's how did that story go?
1: That was maybe like six months into us uh, having this, having our little smoker. It was it was a tiny thing and uh, and just getting more and more interested in it and sort of on a on a different track i had been i had been interested in, in starting my own business um, i was in law school but i was really i didn't like it a whole lot and i was kind of stuck a little bit and i was really interested in entrepreneurship and starting my own thing and I, at the end of the day i really didn't care too much about what it was and and so these kind of i you know you, you sit out there and, and you're throwing around ideas and we said, well, you know, if we kept if we kept going on this trajectory with the barbecue getting better and better, then, you know, sure we could be we could be better than these guys with the restaurant that I mentioned earlier. Right. Maybe this could become a thing. And so Keith, that is my friend and, and business partner, he said, well, if we want to make this a thing, then we need to learn how to do it properly. And and the only way to do that is we need to go to Texas and ask some people who really know what they're doing. And um, yeah, and so. We booked, we got on a flight and we flew out to Texas and um, we took a road trip, I think it was three weeks and we just ate barbecue, breakfast, lunch and dinner, any place we could find. Um, I had heard or read about uh, Franklin Barbecue in Austin and uh, I had read his book and I was, you know, that really inspired me. So that's kind of where we started the journey. And um, he had mentioned a couple other restaurants, I got to talk to him there. He's just an incredible person, really, really mellow and approachable. So he mentioned some other restaurants, we then went to those, so Louis Müller Barbecue and all the really historic places. But anything that said barbecue on the side of a row, we would pull over and eat some brisket any time of the day and just talk to the people. The people in Texas were absolutely amazing, just the way they welcomed you into their house and. And, you know, you ask at the counter and before you know it, you're back where the smokers are or in the cold storage where the meat is. And they're happy to tell you all about it.
0: Yeah, Franklin, it amazes me, you know, since he became has become so popular, you see a lot of people making the the pilgrimage there. And he just seems so um, open to talk to people. You know, he has to be extremely busy now and and. uh, but he, uh, he takes the time to, to um, you know, talk to these bloggers and YouTubers who come and want to interview him and so forth. And it just seems like such a uh, genuinely nice
1: guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, he's, he's a barbecue wizard. If you read his book, it's like he, he has broken this down to an art, like or like to a science, I should say, unlike anyone else I've met. Um, so that was, that was a really good person to, to talk to and get information from.
0: Right. And he, you know, started off just wanting to try it and just tweaked things and got better and better and had friends over and finally started to charge a, you know, say, you know, just throw five bucks in the, in the can to help with food costs and so forth. And then now he's uh, an amazingly successful restaurant.
1: Yeah. And that was really inspiring about him that he, he he started with this, you know, uh, trailer RV trailer converted whatever thing on the side of the highway and he was very open in 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 saying that he was not a business person. I mean, I asked the the his book had just come out in German, so I asked him how the book was selling. He said, "I have no idea. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not a business person. I I cook barbecue. I have my wife takes care of the other things."
0: So, okay. Well, that's interesting. You know, someone asked him about going you know, trying to franchise it. And he said, you know, why would I do that? He said, I, I enjoy what I do. I uh, might, I'm making uh, a nice living here where I'm at. Why would I want to ruin it by, uh, you know, trying to franchise out and just, uh, thinning out the, uh, you know, the quality or so forth. So I thought that was really good.
1: Yeah. God bless the man.
0: So then you decided to build your own smoker, your own rig. Um, it looks like you used Franklin's design. You know, he's got a number of videos on how he builds them out of the big propane tanks. Uh, so uh, is it true that this was your first welding project? Because it looks like from online that you uh, just took a welding class and just dove in.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it was. I think it was four months after we came back and we had, I mean, if you go to Texas, we found there were two styles of pit. There's the the turn of the century these brick smokers, which are beautiful, um, but if you were planning on taking this thing on the road, obviously not very practical. And then there's gas tanks welded or uh, smokers, I should say, welded from gas tanks. So the, whether the cook chamber is a, is a is an old gas tank. And um, yeah, Franklin himself, but also other pit masters we said that we met. Would often make their pits themselves, you know, to their own specifications or had them custom built to their own specifications. And so when we saw that, obviously we came back to Europe and we started doing some research as to where we could get a smoker. And there were, I think, two companies in Europe that make these one is in the UK and one is in Poland. But based on what we had learned and the research we had done in Texas, both were not, were not, kind of, were not suited for this style of barbecue. And uh, so, very quickly, came upon a realization that we would have to build our own smoker or have one built. But that was the latter one was out of outside our budget. So, yeah, I took a three-day welding course, and I'm sort of a do-it-yourself kind of person. So, I took that as a challenge, and uh, yeah, and started with three days of training.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Right. Um... And I've told the story on here before some 20-some years ago when I first became interested in barbecue. Hadn't tasted any barbecue. Just read a couple books and became intrigued by it and decided to build my own smoker. There really weren't uh, commercial rigs available around here. And I'm kind of a do-it-yourselfer and kind of cheap. And um, to build it out of 55-gallon drums, it was very inefficient but that's really what drew me to your videos because uh, I love the the do it yourself kind of attitude just jump in there and make things happen and really uh, was attracted to that uh, quality of your personality and and uh, kind of relates to myself so how long did it take then to pull all the pieces together to to build your smoker
1: so i mean there obviously there were like months of preparation where we would have to find out you know, what kind of what kind of gas tanks do we even have in Europe because they're very different from I mean These 55 gallon drums. They're hard to find You have all these beautiful mid sizes for gas tanks that people use for a single house or a couple houses Here most gas comes from the grid. So there's few people who even have these uh, okay. Tanks, so it, it wasn't easy to find um, But we found this one. It's it's 500 gallon, which is also pretty common size in, in Texas. We found and and um, yeah, and then I bought that and started pretty much right away. And I think it was about three months um, till most of the build had been completed. Um, and that was working two days a week, sometimes three, sometimes four, depending on there was a lot of times when I had to wait for parts or because it was all it was trial and error. I mean, this is the first welding project I had done, so obviously I hit a lot of roadblocks and then had to either, yeah, go back and buy other things and, and uh, or wait for help or, or these sorts of things. So there were a lot of delays, but I think three months is about the time frame that we're looking at.
0: Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the trailer because you built your entire rig. Um, did you have a design to work off of? Um, I mean, it looks like you... It really uh, had thought out the design a bit as as to how you wanted the trailer to, uh, the, you know, the entire rig to be laid out.
1: Yeah, no, I did, I did, I did plan it very thoroughly. Um, with regards to the trailer, obviously, one concern was that it's pretty, I wouldn't say difficult, but there are some requirements you have to meet that are probably beyond the requirements in in Texas or the U.S. generally that you have to meet to get something, you know, road legal here. There's Every vehicle that's on the road has to pass a tech inspection every two years, and these engineers that that check your vehicle there are very, very thorough. So um, I see a lot of guys on YouTube in the U.S., and they custom build a trailer for their smoker rig, and that just would not be an option. A custom-made vehicle, I don't even know what the requirements would be or what kind of testing you would have to go through to get that road legal. So we wanted to buy the trailer platform and then build onto that and um, One of the concerns that I had was The to keep the center of gravity low, so that's why I wanted to have um, We'll have one of these trailers where the wheels are outside kind of in these extended wheel arches Okay. Um, so so that was something I, I looked for and then obviously There was a budget so so I had to find one that that fit the budget and this one was about Uh, 3,000 euros I think Uh, they're made in Poland they're not the best but they're pretty sturdy and um, that's why they decided on this trailer
0: and it looks like you found a shop I don't know how much you had to pay pay rent for the guy but the nice (laughs) thing about it was that it looks like he had you know metal that you needed like the the stack Uh, you bought I th- I thought you bought it from him. Maybe the angle iron and some of the things like that that, that were already there
1: in his shop. Is that correct? So yeah, the shop is is part of a, a farm that belongs to a friend of mine or his dad, I should say. And yeah, that was that was it was not easy to find a place for that. I sh- I had to shop around a little bit and ask some people. Obviously, you know, if, if a working metal shop or a fabrication shop is not going to clear their floor for you to work there for three months. So uh, it had to had to be kind of a, a little bit more of an alternative scenario. And this farm, they had a big workshop there and, and, uh, and also some of the heavy equipment. I mean, I knew this thing was going to be seriously heavy once it was all assembled. So without a forklift, it just would not have been possible. So um, yeah, so I, I talked to him, I talked to his dad, and uh, they were kind enough to Agreed to having me work there for whatever three months it was going to take. I didn't really know how long it was going to take, so I was a little. I didn't give them an exact time frame, <laughs> <laughs> and um, they had the tools there. They did not. They had some, you know, leftover pieces of sheet metal and and angle iron and that so forth. But most of that, I went to a, a shop nearby where I bought all these parts.
0: The other thing I was intrigued about is stack height. I know watching other videos stack height it's important to have enough to get a good airflow across the smoker and then you have the limitations of the height of your trailer and of course bridge um as you're traveling on the road so how did you weigh the uh, difference between the stack height that you wanted to get correct airflow and uh, the limitations of your trailer and traveling and so forth
1: i mean yeah that's that's a good question the um I think the the overwhelming concern with that was that you could always make it shorter later if you if you realized that there was too much of a draw. So I went for as long as as possible without getting any like clearance issues with bridges and stuff. Right. So it's 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 pretty tall. I also used. There is, I think it's called Felden's Barbecue Calculator or Barbecue Pit Calculator. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's on it's on the internet, and you can type in all the values and it will recommend a certain uh, length for and diameter for your uh, for your stack. And I I made reference to that calculator several times.
0: Yeah, I think it um, it gives you firebox recommended firebox sizes and stack heights and different things. It's a good uh, it's good you brought that up because I had found I'd seen that before and uh, hadn't thought about that. Tell me a little bit about your, your business plan. I assume you did this, you decide to make some extra money?
1: Yeah, so one, one book that, I, that really helped me in this process, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to uh, quote it a couple times, so uh, is, um, it's a guy called Eric Ries, and uh, he teaches at the Harvard Business School now, but he started out starting businesses, failing, and doing it again. And his book is called The Lean Startup, and I, I read that shortly before we went into business with this uh, barbecue thing. And um, one of his, one of the main takeaways for me from this book is that most businesses fail because in, in your business plan, you make a number of assumptions um, that this is the right product for this market for at this price point, this is the kind of advertising you should do and so on and so forth. And then you take all these assumptions lumped together and, and put them on the market and usually, it's enough for one of these assumptions to be wrong for the company not to be successful, at least not the way you imagined it. So, his all idea is, <clears throat> or his, his approach to things, uh, uh, after much trial and error, is that you have to test these assumptions before you go do your big launch. And one of the ways you do this is... It's with a let's call it a prototype so what does that mean for our business so the idea was to start a barbecue restaurant in germany and and bring all that uh the charm and the food and the southern hospitality and and all that that we experienced there and, and we're so fond of when we were there in texas and and uh, to bring that to germany but obviously that would be a major undertaking uh, you would have to pur- purpose Build a restaurant for that to, to get the architecture right, to get the feel right. Then you have to build several smokers so that you can service enough people or or feed enough people, and um, hire and staff. And so we're talking about a major investment, probably five six hundred thousand euros. And of course, you can go take a lot, take out a loan, and do that. But the risk is immense, especially if you if this is your first uh, time that you start a restaurant, you have no experience. So, based on kind of his approach. I, I asked myself how far can we break this idea down to still get kind of the core feel about it or you know give people an understanding what it is what it was what, what is it that that we're about and and then go out and test this idea with in the real world with real paying customers before we we take out such a big loan and the end of that thought process was this mobile catering rig and and or food truck whatever you want to call it and this would be a a Pretty affordable way to cook barbecue and go out to people and different kinds of people because we can you know It's mobile so we can go in the city. We can go outside the city We can try out different venues uh, with different kinds of competition and get some data points on uh, it, Does this actually work and under what circumstances what kind of price point will people accept? Um, how what how has the menu does the menu have to offer how? Much do you have to adapt the Texas barbecue to the German palate? All these questions that we had and and uh, assumptions that we made about that, uh, we could go out and test that with this with this catering rig, and and uh, that's how this idea was conceived.
0: Well, I I love that thought process. It's kind of like the. I've seen it described as a minimum viable product. You know, if you if, exactly, yeah, if you're if you're thinking of starting a business, I talked to a lady. I heard, I heard about this food truck about thirty minutes west of where I live, and it's a really small town. And I thought it's goofy to that I hear about this popular food truck over there. She she was parked. You know, it was a mobile trailer, but she just kept it at a stationary location all the time. And so I went over to find out what the, the hype was about and, and talked to her a bit, and she was just at the point of closing down her food truck and opening a restaurant, and I asked her about why she started a food truck in the first place. She said she had always wanted a restaurant, and she said, what's the easiest way for me to get started and perfect some of my recipes that I like and find out what the community likes, and to do that she decided that if she bought a trailer, catering trailer, food trailer, whatever you want to call it, uh, she could always get her money back out of it. So she bought a used food tra- trailer from like Florida and brought it up here and just started cooking and, and what people liked she made more of and tweaked some of the recipes and so forth And uh, based on customer feedback. And at the point in time that I had talked to her, she had her entire menu laid out, and knew the profitability, um, and was actually had purchased some land and was getting ready to build her first restaurant. So, uh, so I thought that was a an awesome uh, idea, uh, a way to without you know spending because when a restaurant fails, you know there's hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of kitchen equipment that they sell at at uh, discount auction prices a little bit of nothing and so this was a way to to get into it with very little risk on that huge capital side of things so moving forward and getting into the marketing side of things how did you uh, how did you start to market your business and start to get customers in
1: <laughs> yeah that was that was a tough experience so the um... Obviously, when you're when you're just starting out, you're just so thankful for anyone offering you a gig that you will jump on the first opportunity without much without much much thinking. So, um, the first gig we did, and you saw the videos, we had on our way uh, down from that workshop where we built it. We had an acc- I was involved in an accident with this trailer that was we had just finished, and. Um, yeah, the, I totaled the car that was sort of the van that was towing the trailer. Unfortunately, the, the trailer was not damaged, so uh, we were all a little bit stressed out. That was just days away from our first event. Um, but somehow, we, we pulled it all together and showed up to this first venue in some little uh, town out in the countryside that we had <laughs> we'd never heard of. And uh, yeah, and sure enough, this whole weekend, it was just bucketing down rain and you know, we ended up selling whatever, 40, 50 sandwiches. It was it was a disaster in most ways, but it was our first step into in, out into the cold, and uh, and we survived it. And um, obviously, we all, we had no idea like what to calculate. So I had bought way too much beef for that first event, and then we ended up selling almost none of none of it. And uh, I, like, frantically looked online for any kind of event that would happen uh, within the next couple of weeks before the beef would turn bad. And I found, through sheer luck probably, there was a, there was one spot left open on Europe's largest food festival that was just in our area here in Dusseldorf, like an hour north of here. And um, we got, like, the worst spot Possible at the very end of the festival ground people had to walk for miles to get from the popular spots to where we were <laughs> but this was our this was our first breakthrough and and uh, And people just we had a huge line build up and we were just we couldn't serve be fast enough for for people to We couldn't serve fast enough to keep up with the flow of people and that was the first time we kind of got a sense of Okay, this this could go places.
0: Well, that's uh, fantastic that you were able to find something and make that uh, a bad situation into a good one. But I often wondered uh, we had we'd just been to an event, my wife and I, last weekend. Uh, it's um, a, a big event I'd heard about in the past, never been there, and here out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, this thing mu must have built up over the years to uh, a huge event, thousands and thousands of people coming through. And I, I wonder, I was walking through there, and probably twenty-five food vendors. What kind of numbers they could generate on a weekend uh, with that many people? So I don't know if you are free to share numbers, but I would love to know, you know, kind of um, just how successful. I know it's a lot of work. Uh, straight through a weekend like that, but uh, just how much cash could a uh, uh, vendor generate?
1: Yeah, so so this one I actually know a few numbers about because um, we've done this event three times now. They do it once a year, and um, it's inside the city, so they, they pretty much lock the city center down for this event. And um, in, within these three days, they cater to about 50,000 people, and, uh, I think there's over 300 vendors there, but there's a lot of people who just sell wine or, you know, French right. cheese or whatever. And there's mm-hmm. like a little food court there with food trucks that do the heavy lifting when it comes to, uh, when it comes to food. And, uh, on a weekend like that, which is, that's really the, that's the top of the line. That's the biggest event we do, uh, in a year, we would be selling over a thousand, uh, brisket sandwiches, 1200 sandwiches in, in those three days. Wow. And, um, <laughs> Yeah. That's incredible. Like that's that's we're looking at 16 to 18 hour days where right. at night you're 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 out there cooking during the day you're serving, you know, after 8 hours of serving you realize you haven't taken a single break to drink something or or go to the bathroom. So this is this is hard work, but you could be walking away from a weekend like that with um, about $5,000 in profit in your in your pocket.
0: Okay. Well, I can't even imagine how you figure how many briskets it takes to uh, make that many sandwiches. Uh, so I'd be interested in that number.
1: Yeah. So ooh. it's, <laughs> it's, all uh, I have all the values in kilograms in my head, but let's, let's try to break this down. So with the, with the loss in weight that we get from the cooking process, we end up with about four portions out of one kilo. That's like two pounds. So Two pounds will make four portions, I guess, that will make one pound, make two portions of, of beef. Ooh, help me out with this. My math is not good, but...
0: So a 15-pound brisket would make 30 sandwiches,
1: correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's about right. So we would be going through, whatever, 300, 300, 600 pounds of beef in a weekend. Wow. You
0: know, it, since you have kind of a new uh, a new genre in, the, <laughs> in Germany, and not a lot of other um, barbecue food trucks or barbecue businesses to to compare yourself to how did you decide on initial pricing for for the uh,
1: for your products Mm, yeah that's also a good question so there is no one doing brisket at at any event you go Uh, very rarely do you find someone who advertises brisket but then it would be coming out of an electric smoker or A pot roast or anything There's, there's no one who does offset smoked wood-fired brisket the way we do it and and also no one who who shows up in an event with a smoker this size so that there's there's a certain uniqueness here involved Um, what you do see is people cooking pulled pork and, and uh, sometimes pork ribs so I would not just sound kind of arrogant, but the simpler kinds of barbecue uh, that are that're not as hard to make and and they're often done on, a, on an electric uh, electric smoker. Uh, so those you would see and, and they would be selling uh, a sandwich or, or uh, even just a portion of, of uh, pulled pork with whatever french fries or I don't even know what they do and that would be going anywhere between seven and 10. Euros or I mean euro and dollar are pretty close, so seven to ten dollars. So we knew that with the beef, we we could fall into that range or maybe go a little bit above that range, and and that's kind of where we started. And then obviously we calculated our cost. You know what would it cost us to buy the beef, which is that's a topic onto itself. <laughs> um, and then to cook it, uh, uh, to get the smoker to an event, and then also gradually pay off the you know what it costs us to build the smoker, insurance, and and uh, whatnot. Uh, um, so cover all your other running costs, and uh, that's how we decided. I think we started with about eight dollars a sandwich, and then we played around with different portion sizes. At the beginning, we had like 250 grams on a sandwich, and I mean I can eat that, but most people will find it just too much. So then we kind of dialed back the por- the portion size. Obviously, that raises your profit per sandwich, and uh, so there was a, there was a lot of experimentation involved there in the, in the early days.
0: So, did you I'm trying to think of side dishes or other products? I assume for efficiency and profitability, you want to keep the variety of your options small uh, for speed of delivery and and just simplicity's sake and how how did you make the decision on that um on number of products and so forth
1: yeah so so uh, one thing that we that we noticed when we went and did some research on these food events is that oftentimes a food truck which is i don't know how many square feet you have in that kitchen but it's like maybe 20 or whatever it's these are things are tiny and and then food trucks would have on offer eight or 10 different dishes and, and then they would have a line. But once you like sit there and watch the line for a while, you saw that it wasn't going anywhere. These people were waiting sometimes three, four minutes for right. them to like custom make an order. And obviously someone sees that there's a line of 20 people, then maybe they're going to go somewhere else. So just because you have a line, that does not mean that you're having a good day. Um, necessarily. So we really wanted to keep things very streamlined. We knew that because of the massive upfront cost you have of having the smoker going for 10 to 12 hours to cook a load of briskets and then hauling this heavy thing there and and everything, there's a lot of upfront cost for a barbecue operator compared to say a taco van that just pulls up everything is frozen they fire up the grill and you know 15 minutes later they're good to go they they're looking at a completely different um different kind of cost structure so for us it was it became very clear uh, very early that we would excel in environments where you have to move a lot of food in a short period of time because all our beef is already cooked it just has to be cut to portion size and served and so we kind of uh doubled down on that by sticking just to brisket sandwiches for a long time that was one of the reasons and the other reason was also that because i I mentioned earlier there's a lot of other vendors who have gotten into pulled pork and and, uh, Yeah, mostly pork pork uh, style barbecue and most of them In our humble opinion were not very good. So they weren't a very good representation of we thought barbecue was and could be so we didn't want to be thrown into The box with these with these uh, products or with these vendors and that's why we decided to just stay away from pork and and I mean in Texas brisket is king so we decided to just stick with the brisket and Master that before we would move on to anything else,
0: well, I noticed in one of the videos you were doing a catering event of some type and was thinking about side dishes and the importance of side dishes to the entire business model. Uh, do you just do them for for catering events? Uh, how important are side dishes? and the tweaking of those offerings to your entire business model?
1: So you kind of have to, have to separate two different kinds of events that we do. We do weekends events in public spaces, food fairs, sort of what we discussed uh, up to this point, where just anyone will show up. There's a lot of competition there. So someone who's looking for a vegetarian dish, they can find a vegetarian dish. I don't have to compete with, you know, someone else for 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 the vegetarian customers. Uh, there's a lot of what would you what you as a beef eater would consider sides. So we didn't think about sides for the longest time. Like that was just, it was something that would get in the way of how streamlined the business was. And um, so we had, for the most part, brisket on a sandwich, like on a bun, and we would have a choice of two homemade barbecue sauces, and that was difficult enough for most customers to make up their mind which <laughs> of the two sauces they wanted. So, yeah. uh, we we, did, we didn't mess with any with any sides. Um, for the then the other style of, of event we do is is private events, uh, company events, uh, birthdays, bar mitzvahs. No, we haven't done bar mitzvahs, but uh, uh, christenings, um, uh, weddings, that sort of stuff. And that then obviously when you're the only then you're the only food stand there obviously then you have to have something for everyone so that's when we would look for what can we do for vegetarians or vegans what can we do in terms of sides what other meats can we offer and and that depends a lot on the client so as clients who say I want to have beef ribs and then obviously we're gonna we're gonna cook some beef ribs for them so we will always do brisket because we say this is what we're good at right and if you want us to do this event we're going to cook brisket for you and that's also most of the clients are first get to know us at a public event they eat our brisket and they're like i would love to have these guys for my for my birthday or for my son's birthday or for our wedding whatever and then sometimes they want uh, a beef alternative so then then we would look at pulled pork or pork ribs or or something like that
0: i assume as you mentioned your Running costs, or just standard operating costs, are fairly high. You know, you, to fire up the smoker, you don't want to just do one brisket. So you, you know, you want to make sure to uh, load it up. and And so there would be a minimum-sized venue that you would that you would want to take. Um, is that? Uh, am I reading that correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, we had. We had a, a gig last year where every Thursday we would have a food event here in the city, and it was a kind of a good venue. But it was only open for uh, four hours, sort of for people after work and in the evenings, and we just weren't able to move enough product within that time frame to make it worth our while. So it was it was a good mar- like marketing event where you got to talk to a lot of people, but in terms of uh, revenue. If you're doing barbecue right, it's gonna you're going to have a lot of upfront costs involved, and you need to move a certain number uh, to make up for that cost, and then get into the into the area where you can actually make profits.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, I wanted to get a time frame. Ice. It looks like the videos were posted maybe beginning of 2018, but did, when did you start the the business? When did you start selling?
1: 17. So in. in- March of seventeen, I bought the the gas, the pit, uh, the, the the gas, the gas tank, and started building. And then in uh, in the fall, I think in August, we had these two events that I mentioned to you. And um, okay, yeah, so we're we're
0: twenty nineteen now. So you have two good years in. So thinking back, if you could change one thing in this entire process, what would you have done differently? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> well, while you're thinking about that. What has what has changed about your smoking process since you started?
1: I think what changes, the more experienced you are, and hopefully a lot of people will be able to relate to that, is that you start developing a feeling. Where in the beginning, you, there is no feeling because you have no experience to base that feeling on. You're obsessed with internal temperature and, and fire temperature and, and, and what does my smoke look like and all that. Where after a while especially if you if you are in the fortunate position to be to have consistent variables so your beef is the same the wood you're using is the same then things will start where where in the beginning your 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 results will be all over the board this this will start narrowing and and the results will become become more consistent then you, you kind of stop worrying and you start um, developing a feeling. So oftentimes I will no longer use a thermometer to to gauge when a brisket is cooked. I will just pick it up. And if you've picked up enough briskets, you'll know when a brisket is done. And I, I usually get better results with that than just poking the thermometer in somewhere and then it's saying 201 or 203 or whatever. So I think that's, that's the, probably the biggest thing that has changed. Uh, over that time, as far as the cooking process is concerned,
0: yeah, that's the one thing I noticed. Also, it's nice for so long, you know. I was focused on the science of it, uh, internal temperature, my uh, cook temperature, and so forth, and and it was nice to finally get to the point where you know I pick this meat up and I can tell when it's finally kind of huh, given, you know, it's <laughs> given up and it's the perfect uh, tenderness now. Uh, are you wrapping with butcher paper like Franklin does, or what do you wrap with?
1: So we started out with butcher paper, but that just turned out to be not very cost-effective because they don't make that kind of butcher paper here. We had had to have it shipped in from the U.S., and the prices were ridiculous. So we, we uh, then moved on to just wrapping with foil.
0: Okay. You talked about meat for a little bit. I know it looked like you started out wanting to use Wagyu beef. Is that still what you're doing, or is it really that important for myself, for my cooks? The extra expense didn't seem worth it, but tell me, uh,
1: tell me about your experience. The the beef has been and continues to be the number one reason for headache uh, with regard to this business in the U.S. You're incredibly fortunate to have access to probably, I would say, the best selection and the best quality that you can find anywhere in the world. And um, unfortunately, you also have a a huge appetite for that beef, so that very little (laughs) US-produced beef makes it into export. And uh, we tried for a long time. We were obsessed, because Franklin says he only cooks USDA-grade prime-grade brisket. So for the longest time, we tried to get USDA prime brisket. There's just no way to get this here. Sometimes you could buy an individual brisket, but how far is that gonna get you? So very quickly, we had to look for other places to buy. And obviously we wanted to have Angus beef because that's kind of, it has just this, this the characteristic taste and, and the Angus you buy in the U.S. has just the right kind of, um, kind of attributes that you're looking for as a barbecue pit master and but if you buy Angus here I think in Germany Angus has to have 30% actual Angus genes to be called Angus and they can mix all kinds of other breeds in there and still call it Angus I don't know how that works and a lot of that has to do with um, subsidies that, that German uh, ranchers receive from the EU the German meat market is, is incredibly homogeneous so 85 percent of cattle in germany are two breeds and uh, they're both french breeds Charolais and limousine and just because you for whatever reason you can get more subsidies with that these are both breeds where the animals grow incredibly quickly so that after 13 months they have reached their slaughter weight and it's incredibly lean so less than two percent fat and That was an immediate red light Uh, (laughs) so we couldn't work with we couldn't work with any of that beef and then within angus if even if you look at angus there'll be oftentimes crossbreeds with these french breeds to make an angus animal grow quicker to their to the desired slaughter weight and that just ruins the meat quality so in germany if any kind of steakhouse you go to or any kind of upscale cuisine the beef they use will never be from Germany. Don't ask me why that is. But that's just that's just the way it is. So steakhouses will often have beef from Argentina, from the U.S., from Australia. So that's kind of the places where we started looking. We contacted a lot of wholesalers. And then, like, looking back over the past three years, most of the beef we have used came from Australia, and some of it came from South America, uh, Uruguay being the most... Uh, yeah, being where most of that was from. Okay. Now, what was the question? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think you answered the question. Uh, I asked how important the... the I, I thought I had seen that you uh, were, were using Wagyu... Oh, the Wagyu. Yeah, to start.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, so the, the Wagyu is just... It, the. I was saying that Angus, it, there can be any... I mean, Angus can mean a lot of things. If you're buying Wagyu, and, and you can usually... They cons- the vendor will be able to specify what kind of uh, grade it is. This A1 is kind of a 50-50 crossbreed between Wagyu and Angus. You're looking at the, the, the quality or the difference, the variation in quality that you'll get is very, very minimal. So you're knowing pretty much exactly what you're getting. Okay. Where with Angus, it was always a surprise. So that's that's the only reason we ever considered Wagyu. And we did that for a while Um 2 3 months and um it was just it just not was not cost effective and as right. you said the 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 difference in price was not made up by a difference in quality necessarily there is a lot of marbling in that beef but just in terms of taste i i just i i didn't see i didn't see that as as uh, as necessary
0: now has this become successful enough that it's your only full-time income, or do
1: you have another uh, supplemental income? Yeah, no, it's it's. Um, I think if you if you really if you if you push this and you did this every single weekend and then did catering during the week or even in the off season, this this business will be successful enough to sustain uh, my full-time uh, living. But I was involved in another startup uh, back in the day, and and that's where I spent more time than I do barbecuing at the moment. Uh, so I, I, I never pushed it to that, to that level. Yeah. But in terms of success, there's certainly the, the potential there to, for this to become a full-time, full-time living.
0: Well, kind of a side benefit of the entire process. You certainly have gotten quite an education on beef. <laughs> so you're a beef certainly. expert now. Um, so I guess the uh, one of the last questions I have for you is, are you still having fun?
1: We are still having fun. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always interesting with barbecue. Uh, my business partner, he likes to call it, it's the coal mining of street food because you come out of a weekend like that. You have cuts, you have bruises, you're incredibly dirty after a day of coming home. you like, all your clothes will be. And, uh, so it is hard work. I, I'm, you know, no doubt about it. Any, any person who does barbecue commercially will, will, will know what I'm talking about. And, uh, but, but it's also, you get home after a day like this with that cash in your pocket and you sit down at three in the morning at the kitchen table and you count out those bills, you know what you did to get those bills. And the, the reward you feel from that is, is incredible. And and then the people you meet, that's maybe the, the biggest thing, is it's, um, it's something about serving people food that is, I think, is unparalleled. Because... Yeah, you have you, you spend all that time and effort in preparing this portion, and then you hand it over, and that person takes that first bite, and the eyes roll back in the back of their head, and they're like, "This is the best beef I've ever had." There's no, I don't know, I've never felt that kind of sensation before in my life, or yeah, or since.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I uh, I enjoy that also. Um, that's really all the questions I had. Is there anything else that, that you'd like to share that I haven't asked
1: you? Yeah, I still don't have an answer to the, to the, <laughs> the one thing I would do differently.
0: <laughs> it sounds like you did everything perfect then. That's fantastic.
1: No, I mean, I would say that if, if anyone out there is, is considering doing anything like that, or, or, you know, it's been sitting on that dream of, I want to go and, and, and start my own business, or or even do barbecue for a living, um, make my hobby into my, into my work, then I can only recommend they do it. I mean, you're never going to be happy again if you're thinking, what if I had done that back when I was thinking about it? So this kind of no regrets mindset. And uh, because for me, I don't know where this is going to go. Is it going to turn into a restaurant, or? This it could it could go a number of different ways, but one thing I don't regret is having done it, uh, no matter all the the hard work and and uh, headaches and and sleepless nights and all that. But just what you will learn about business itself, if this is your first business, I guess, um, about about the diff- about the people you, you do you go into business with, about the people who will support you, who will be there uh, when things get hard. And then most importantly about yourself, you know, after three days of not having slept, how will you be able to perform? Like what will that, how will will you pull through when things get difficult? And uh, yeah, just enjoy being out there and, and, and trying this for yourself. There's very few people who who dare to take that step. And, and I can only encourage anyone who's, who's thinking that or thinking about it or, I often say that in my videos, but if there's uh, if there's any pit master out there who's someone who wants to become a professional pit master or thinks on starting his own food truck, um, I would love to help. If there's any if there's any more questions that you have or or you know, you want to build your own pit and you wanna have the dimensions that I use or anything, um, I, I I love to do that. I get I get a lot of emails. Uh, I don't post videos regularly. Uh, mostly because uh, I'm limited for time. But I get a lot of emails and, and uh, I get on the phone with people. I spoke to a young gentleman from Guatemala last week who wanted to start a, a food truck business, and it's the most gratifying feeling uh, to be asked to consult on a project like that. So I'm here.
0: Well, I love your attitude, and that's what what drew me to the videos, the the idea of just jumping in there and making it happen (laughs) no matter what it took learning to weld and all that (laughs) stuff i just uh so i really appreciate you taking time to talk to me today jonas um if someone wants to get a hold of you what's the best uh what's the best place to find you um
1: our website is uh, www.tasteoftexas.de the german suffix And uh, we're on Facebook, Taste of Texas Barbecue. We're on Instagram, Taste of Texas Barbecue. And most of the messages or phone calls you make there are going to get directly to my phone. So that's the best way of getting a hold of me.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate you taking time for me, Jonas.
1: Dean, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And thank you once again for tuning in to Perfect Barbecue. You can find us at perfectbbq.com. I will leave uh, Jonas uh, the Taste of Texas website address in the uh, show notes along with a link to their Facebook page. Thank you once again for tuning in, and we will see you next time.